Well, as we prepare to go to God's Word, let's seek His face specifically to ask His blessing as we hear and I preach. Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so I ask you today that you might bring your word to bear on our hearts. Lord, may we look into your word and see Jesus clearly. May we recognize him. May we look on him and believe in him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that the children of Israel could look and be saved. We pray that we today would see Jesus lifted up upon the cross and look to him and be saved. Father, we ask that you would bless my preaching and their hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. For Christians, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah is of first importance. And now since these things are of first importance, something we like to do here at RGC is to take a little time to stop and reflect during the Easter season on all that happened in Jerusalem that last fateful week of Jesus' earthly ministry. So we're going to take a short break from our First Corinthians series, and BJ and I are going to preach three messages we're calling Stories of Easter, Encountering Jesus. By the way, there's the little invitation card. By all means, go and give that to someone this week and encourage them to come. So we're going to be looking at the events of Passion Week through the eyes of different characters. Characters who each have a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. As BJ told you, on Good Friday, we're going to hear the story of a thief. Easter Sunday, BJ is going to tell the story of the Apostle Peter. This morning, we're going to look at the story of the crowds. And if you'd like to follow along through the message, there's a bulletin insert uh, in gray uh, within your bulletin, and you might find that helpful as you follow along. We're going to look at the story of the crowds. We're going to consider three particular occasions when Jesus of Nazareth drew a crowd. And we'll notice how each crowd has had a different response to Jesus. The first one was expectant and enthusiastic. The second one was hostile. And one, the last one, was cut to the heart. And the very reason that they responded in different ways is because they had three very different understandings of who Jesus was. Now, why should you care? Why should you listen? I'll tell you why. This isn't just ancient history. You're in one of these crowds. I don't mean that literally, of course. But these three crowds do, I believe, stand in for all of humanity and all of our various reactions to Jesus of Nazareth. They represent us. They represent us accurately. And that means that somewhere in one of these crowds, you're going to find your face. You're going to hear your voice crying out. 
you're going to see your opinion of Jesus on display. So here's what I'm asking of you this morning. Scan the crowds. Be watching for your face. Listen for your voice. And ask yourself honestly, what's my response to Jesus? Let's start with the Palm Sunday crowd. As Matt read, Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and as he approaches the city, he's surrounded by a multitude. Lots of these folks are are pilgrims who are also coming to the feast from other parts of Israel, and others are coming out from the city to welcome him in. So he's got people coming with him, people coming out to meet him. His disciples are there, people that he's healed are there, people who saw him raise Lazarus from the dead last week are there bearing witness to him. And Jesus chooses to ride into the city mounted on a donkey's colt. Now in doing that, he's intentionally fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah, which tells Jerusalem that her king is going to come with her, come to her with righteousness and salvation, and he's going to come riding on a donkey. And in fact, that taps into another tradition where the king's sons of Israel, that was what they rode. They rode on donkeys. So Jesus is being very intentional here. He's making an overt claim to be the king of Israel, finally come to save his people, riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And so the atmosphere is just electric. The crowds that are thronging to him are wildly jubilant. They're amazed as they remember all the mighty works that they've seen, and they spread their cloaks along the road so he can ride on them. They cut branches from the palm trees. They spread them out also. And with loud shouts of admiration, they acclaim Jesus. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Someone else cries out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna to the son of David. Shouts of acclamation. Now what is this crowd's assessment of Jesus? That he's a great hero. They believe that all their dreams are about to become reality. And that Jesus is the one that's going to make that happen. Luke's gospel is especially definite on this point. Luke says, they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so their cry is, save us! Lord, save us! That's essentially what Hosanna means. They believe that Jesus is the son of David, God's Messiah, the one who's going to deliver Israel and set up the kingdom of God right now. And by crying Hosanna... They're calling on him to bring all this to pass. Now, that's not wrong. None of that's wrong. But, what are they actually looking for? And what is Jesus offering? And do they match? See, friends, here's the problem. The crowd doesn't really understand what Jesus has come to do. And that's because they don't understand what they really need. Here's what they think is their problem. They think their problem is that they're an oppressed nation writhing under the iron heel of an oppressor, Rome. 
And so what they want is a political and military solution to that problem. What they want is for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem, check. Then they want him to muster all Israel to himself and lead all their hosts in triumph over their enemies with the result that the Romans are driven out of the promised land and Jesus establishes his kingdom in the holy city. And then everything will be great. They'll have peace and prosperity and blessing and all their troubles will be at an end. But, but that's, that's not what Jesus has come to do. Now, he is Israel's king. And he has come to save his people. That's right. But from what? From an enemy that's far more oppressive and far more deadly than Rome. It's sin. Their sin is the true enemy. Sin is the wicked tyrant that's kept them under bondage. Sin is the foe that Israel has never, ever, ever, ever been able to overcome. Just look at their history. It's littered with the wreckage and the devastation that's caused by sin. Again and again and again and again, Israel has fallen under the judgment of God. Why? Because it didn't matter what prophets or priests or kings God sent none of them could ultimately do anything to, do, to free Israel from the power of sin. So what that means is that if Jesus were going to come in the way they expect, right into Jerusalem, set up an earthly kingdom, it wouldn't necessarily fix anything. Because it wouldn't deal with the problem of sin. Just the problem of an external oppressor. But now, Jesus, the true king of Israel, has come to Jerusalem, and there he's going to wage war against their ultimate enemy. He's about to crush sin and death and the devil, the great serpent of old who stands behind sin and death. And he has a battle plan. You want to hear it? He, he just revealed it to his 12 disciples just a couple days ago. And here he says, here's it is. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem, guys. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. That's it. That's the plan. Jesus is going to allow himself to be crucified. He's going to willingly stoop down and submit to being loaded up with all the hideous burden of his people's sin. And he's going to remove that burden from off their shoulders and place it on his own. And then he's going to suffer deepest agonies as God pours out on him the judgment that our sins deserve. And then he'll die. The righteous one will die in place of guilty sinners. That's the first part of the plan. But then comes the second part. He's going to rise on the third day. 
And by his resurrection, he'll declare victory over sin, he'll trample death, he'll crush Satan's head, and then, because of his triumph, he's going to be in a position to offer to all people forgiveness of sins, and newness of life, and hearts of flesh in place of hearts of stone, and the power to obey, and peace with God, and eternal life. He'll be in a position to do that because of his death. And resurrection. It's absolutely glorious. It's just not what the crowd wants. They see in him an answer man and a hero. They admire him because they've got a list of things that they want from him. And they think that he's about to pay out. And so the Gospel of John gives this sad commentary Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. They shouted. They were jubilant. But they didn't believe. Because they didn't understand why he was coming. Now let's talk about you. Have you seen your face amid the crush of this Palm Sunday crowd? You know, many people, many, many people admire Jesus. Many people think well of him, think highly of him. And many, many people are drawn to him because they have something that they want him to do for them. And they expect that he will be the solution to their problems. What might you be wanting Jesus to do for you? Are you perhaps looking for life to generally just go better than it has been lately? And you think Jesus might be the key? Are you looking for him to protect you from some of life's trials and difficulties? Are you looking for your marriage to be jump-started? Are you hoping that your kids can learn good morals and be well-behaved and grow up to be good citizens and like you, hopefully? Do you want financial stability and you think maybe Christian principles could help? Are you looking for physical healing for yourself or for somebody else? Have you even maybe made a deal with God? You'll start coming to church if he comes through for you in some way. Do you want Jesus' help to become a better person? Are you looking for him to take away the heartache that you have over some deep loss? Do you want to stop feeling so bad about things that you've done that you're ashamed of? Are you looking for him for help with your anxiety or your depression and your angst? Are you looking for a loving community, one where you'll be accepted and cared for? Are you just scared of hell and you hope instead to go to heaven? Add your own if you have one that I haven't thought to mention. And you're very impressed with Jesus and you admire his goodness and his power and you think he can help you with your problem. And so you're in this crowd crying out, Hosanna, Lord, save us, save me, save me. I want you to listen very carefully. 
most of those hopes and desires that I just mentioned are not intrinsically bad. But they're not ultimately what Jesus is offering you. See, he hasn't come to save you from your circumstances. He's come to save you from yourself. One preacher has said it this way, we're the ones with the problem, but it's also the case that we are the problem. This is critically important to understand. You have to come to recognize the true issue with your life, and that's that you're a sinner and a rebel against God. And your true need, therefore, is to be rescued from your sin and from the eternal judgment that you justly deserve because of your sin. That is your need. And that is exactly what Jesus is offering. That's what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. He died on the cross to bear the judgment for sin, and he rose again to conquer sin. And on the basis of his death and his resurrection, he now says, Come to me, for whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, you who up to this point have merely been admiring Jesus, will you come for what he's actually offering? Will you believe on him? So that's the reaction of the Palm Sunday crowd. Admiration, which is is woefully insignificant. They've missed the point. Now let's turn and consider a different crowd, a second crowd that converged five days later on Good Friday. So, in the meantime, King Jesus, having entered Jerusalem, spent the next few days in fierce conflict with the religious establishment in Jerusalem. He began on Monday by entering the temple and forcibly driving out the money changers and the merchants who were defiling it. He cleansed the temple. Then there's a series of tense exchanges as the Pharisees and the Sadducees laid traps for him as he taught, trying to catch him in his words. But Jesus confounds them all with grace and wisdom. And so they're enraged. They're beside themselves, and they firm up a plot to kill him. And in the end, they're successful. Thursday night after the Passover meal, Judas betrays his master into their hands, and he's arrested. And at the house of the high priest, late into the night, they hold a trial. They bring all sorts of false witnesses against him, but nothing really sticks, because Jesus is, of course, completely innocent. So the high priest puts Jesus under oath and adjures him to answer a question. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? To which Jesus replies, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tears his robes and he says to the council, You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemn him as worthy of death. But there's a problem. They don't have the authority to put anybody to death. Only the Romans do. So Friday morning dawns and they take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. 
And they present him to Pilate as a, as a terrible evildoer. They say, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's a lie. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Pilate examines Jesus, trying to make out what's going on. Are you the king of the Jews, he says. And Jesus replies, you have said so. And he's acknowledging that the reality that he is Israel's king, but just not in the way Pilate means it. Pilate concludes this man's not really a problem. So he tells the chief priests that he's going to release him, since it's tradition at the Passover feast that he releases one prisoner to them. But, but at some point in these proceedings, a crowd has gathered. A crowd is gathered outside Pilate's headquarters. And this crowd is under the influence of the religious leaders and the chief priests and the scribes. And they're restless. And the leaders are working to stir them up. And and they see the idea that Jesus is a threat. He's a threat to our religious order. He's a threat to our temple worship. He's a threat to our nation and its stability. He's a threat to life as you know it. And pretty soon this crowd galvanizes and they become hostile to Jesus. They make their assessment. This Jesus is a threat. And so by the time Pilate offers to release Jesus, the crowd doesn't want to hear it. The leaders have a better idea, an alternative proposal. What about Barabbas? who's a notorious murderer. And the crowds begin to shout, Away with this man! And release for us Barabbas! Well, Pilate says, Then what should I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And the crowds cry out, Crucify him! Why? Pilate says, What evil has he done? And he brings out Jesus to them. By this time, he's been beaten. He's been dressed in a purple robe with a crown of thorns twisted on his head by the soldiers. And Pilate says to them, Behold the man. Behold your king. And again, we hear the crowds cry. Louder now. More urgent. More violent. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And then something truly dreadful happens. Pilate seeks to avoid the moral responsibility for condemning Jesus, so he washes his hands. And he tells the crowd, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answer, His blood be upon us and upon our children. The crowds take the blood of God's Messiah onto themselves and onto their children. And Pilate is backed into a corner, so he acquiesces and he delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Now again, let's talk about you. Do you see your face? Do you hear your voice in the Good Friday crowd? Don't say no too quickly. See, the crowds perceive Jesus to be a threat. And that has earned him their hostility. They decide whatever his kingship means, they don't want to have anything to do with it. 
And since they reject him and his claims, and his claims on them, they become determined that they must push him away. They must silence his voice. They must make sure that he will not trouble them anymore. And so they rage against him in a vain attempt to shut him out and shut him up. And finally, they call for him to be destroyed. Does that sound like you? Are you opposed, even hostile, to Jesus of Nazareth? You say, nah, nah, not hostile. But he presses you and he says, who do you say that I am? I don't know. I'm the God-man. I'm Lord in Christ. You must deal with me. And he presses you. Now how does he react? Now are you opposed? Now are you even hostile to this Jesus? How does he threaten you? Probably it it comes because he claims to be the king. And you don't want him for your king. And you'd be right. Jesus is intrusive. Jesus will not leave you alone. So maybe you resent that Jesus claims authority, kingly authority over your life. Maybe you're afraid that he's going to take away your freedom to do what you want. Maybe you understand Maybe you're clear that Jesus defines good and evil differently than you do. And he claims that what he says about good and evil goes. But you don't don't like his definitions. You want to determine good and evil for yourself. Maybe you suspect that he will disrupt your comfortable world. You're comfortable with your life. You're comfortable with the way you do things. You're comfortable with your sins. You don't like the idea that Jesus would come and interfere. Maybe you know that Jesus would require you to give up some sin that you love. And you can't stand the thought of giving that sin up. Maybe you're troubled by the fact that he calls his followers to lose their lives for his sake. To deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him in a life of sacrifice. And you don't like the sound of that. Because you want the good life. You want the easy life. That doesn't sound easy or good. So for any of these reasons, you might see Jesus as a threat to you. And you'd be correct. The Good Friday crowd was correct. Jesus is intrusive. He does claim to be king. He will disrupt your life. He does demand lordship. And so I ask you, do you stand among this crowd opposing Jesus? Are you going to great lengths to justify why you're rejecting him? And so rather than submit to him, will you opt to just get shut of him by any means necessary? So how different are you? Away with him! Away with this Jesus. Crucify him. 
But what have they done? What have they done? They've become guilty of his blood. As have you. As have I. And that's a dreadful thing. That's a dreadful reality. And that brings us to the third crowd. The crowd at Pentecost. So about 50 days have passed since the Passover. Jesus has died on the cross as he said he would. He has risen in glorious victory as he said he would. He has received from the Father all authority. And he has returned to heaven, taking up his throne at the right hand of the Father. And now Jesus' followers, about 120 people in all, they're still in Jerusalem. Because after his resurrection, he told them they needed to stay in the city until they should receive the promised Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Pentecost, they're all gathered in one place. And there comes a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it fills the house. And tongues of fire descend and come to rest on each one of them. And they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives them power to bear witness to Jesus. And the sound is so loud that a crowd gathers. Now this crowd is made up of Jews from all over the world who have come to Jerusalem from the festival. They've come from Italy, Iran, Greece, Egypt, Turkey, lots of places. But very quickly they're filled with astonishment because the 120 disciples have come out among them and begun proclaiming to them the good news about Jesus in all their different heart languages. And they don't, want, they don't know what to make of all this. Because they clearly, these, these folks are Galileans. How do they know Elamite? How do they know Cappadocian? Right? They don't know what to make of this. So Peter lifts up his voice and he begins to preach to the crowd. And he says, friends, what you're seeing today is the fulfillment of what the prophets said. That God would one day pour out his spirit... On the great day of the Lord's salvation. And on that day, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he proclaims Jesus to them. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Of all this, we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And then Peter quotes from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now let's just review those, the high points. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth is God's Messiah. Number two, you rejected God's Messiah and you crucified him. 
Number three, God has vindicated him by raising him from the dead and exalting him to his right hand. And number four, you need to know that God the Father has established Jesus as Lord and Christ. This one whom you crucified. Now suddenly, this crowd is gripped and convicted as the truth breaks in on them and they finally understand who Jesus really is. Oh, it's clear to them now. He wasn't just a great hero, as some of them had supposed. He was not a dangerous threat. He was, and he is, Lord and Christ. They finally got it. But then, a second truth crashes over them. Woe, woe to us! We killed God's Messiah! We rejected the Savior that God sent to us. How could we possibly ever get rid of our guilt? We cursed ourselves. We cursed our children. We called for His blood to be upon us. And their stricken cry is, Brothers, what shall we do? Well might they ask that. Well might all of us ask it. Because, friends, you and I are in the same predicament. God sent Jesus to us to save us, and we murdered him. We didn't recognize him. And he threatened us, so we killed him. His blood is on our hands also. What shall we do? We listen. We listen as Peter gives his next words. He says, in response, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then so beautifully, so wonderfully, he adds, for the promise is for you and for your children And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Oh yes, he says, you called the curse of blood down upon yourself and on your children. But God's God's done something amazing. What you intended for evil, he intended for good. God's turned the curse into a blessing. And now it's through the blood of Jesus which you shed that salvation is made available to you. And sinner, this is still true. It's still true today. This promise is for you. It's for you. You who wanted his stuff but didn't want him. This promise is for you. You who rejected him when he threatened your independence. This promise is for you. You who have sinned so badly, you don't know what to do with your guilt. This promise is for you. You whose hands are stained with his blood. This promise is for you. Repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your rebellion. Because the Lord Jesus Christ right now is seated at the right hand of the Father, just as he was on that day. And he's offering forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who will believe in him.
This offer is for everyone, including you. Three crowds, three responses. How will you respond? Will you recognize Jesus for who he truly is? Will you humble yourself and bow before him and acknowledge him to be Lord and Christ? Will you take his offer, his kind and gracious offer? You can be saved through his blood. Will you respond to him in repentance and turn to him in faith? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, those are sweet words to those who are convicted of their sin. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, for the promises for you. Lord, we pray today that you would convict us of our sins. We pray that we would convict that you would convict us of our sins of neglecting Jesus, of misidentifying Jesus, of spurning and mocking Jesus, of rejecting Jesus and thereby participating in his death. Lord, may we be cut to the heart. And then may we hear and receive the promise of the gospel that you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Lord, may that be us. May we turn and repent and believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.